Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. We are 15 hours away from the opening of the Trans-Tasman bubble, but as the government faces tough questions about our testing regime, can we have confidence our border defences are up to scratch? Do you know how many workers have missed tests that they should have um, had? Um, no, I think will be, is it no? Yes, it's this time tomorrow that the first plane of people from Australia who won't require quarantine will be about to land. We can show you how airports have set up for the bubble. So this is your arrivals area and look at this. So this is your new bubble branding. And do proposed hate speech laws mean freedom of speech is under attack? Or is David Seymour's nationwide free speech tour just political opportunism? And I think David gave a very good explanation why it is dangerous to try and have a very narrow view. And it's beneficial for us as a society to widen that debate out as much as we can. We will have that conversation shortly. But I want to start this morning by laying out a quick timeline for you. In June last year, the then Health Minister David Clark said all border-facing workers were being tested for COVID-19. In August, the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins and Ashley Bloomfield made similar assurances before it was revealed that actually more than 60% of our border workers had never had a single test. Now, at the time, the government moved quickly to make the testing mandatory. But did our officials establish a system of checks and balances to ensure that frontline staff were being tested every two weeks? Apparently not. The border worker who tested positive for COVID-19 last week hadn't been tested since November. So why have we been relying on an honesty system and a testing register for workers that was only optional for frontline staff? And as we take our first steps in reopening the border, can the public have faith the government has the necessary systems in place to protect us? Chris Hipkins is the Minister for the COVID-19 Response and is back with us this morning. Morena, Minister. Morena. New Zealand's elimination strategy means our border is our single greatest vulnerability. Let's talk about the benefits of having a voluntary testing register for our frontline border workers. What are the benefits of making that register voluntary? Look, ultimately, um, we moved to set up the testing regime. The testing regime has been covering our border workforce. So if you think about our managed isolation workforce, for example, there are about 4,500 people uh, in that workforce. Uh, we've been taking about 5,500-odd, uh, up to 6,000-odd swabs from that workforce on a fortnightly basis. So those people are being tested frequently. Now, have there been some gaps? Could people have fallen through the cracks? Uh, this most recent case highlights that there are still some... Uh, some weaknesses at the margins. Um, we do need to close those. This is not good enough. This person shouldn't have been able to get away with saying they'd been being tested uh, when they hadn't been. Um, it's not as easy as simply waving a magic wand and making that problem disappear, though. We're talking about a number of different employers, uh, a number of different sort of record-keeping systems. We're trying to standardise those. But we still will, uh, regardless of, of how much we can standardise our systems, be reliant to some extent on individuals and employers making sure that they're doing doing the right thing. Um, employ only employers will know when their workers have been at work, for example, and that determines when they need to be tested. OK, I mean, you do have a standardised system of sorts currently in place, the, the Border Workforce Testing Register, but that's a voluntary register. How many, how many uh, workers, what percentage of workers before this grand millennium outbreak 
were not using that register? Uh, in terms of employers, my understanding is it sits at around 60% of employers uh, working at the border. Now, bearing in mind that's hundreds of employers. That's everything from, you know, a, a, a two or three person truck driving company right the way through to, um, you know, the, the security firm that uh, employs 600 and, people and to be in clear, managed that 60% isolation. were using the register. That's correct, yeah. So 40% were not using the register. But, 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 but again, just to put this into context, that will only tell us when someone's been tested. It won't necessarily tell us when they needed to be tested. So if you think about the port, for example, mm. um, thousands of people will cross the port every day. Um, only a small number of those will need to be tested now because they've come into contact with an incoming ship. And they may be different people on a week-to-week basis. So mm. we do have to rely on employers determining who, who of those people are on the register need to be tested and when they need to be tested. Within our managed isolation, we're, we're working on a, we've rolled out now a standardised sign-in and sign-out system so that if you're working in a managed isolation facility, sign-in, that will then be able to be matched with the testing register and we'll be able to determine whether those people have been tested. That system has been live since February. Mm. But if you take case B, for example, um, it appears they weren't using the sign-in and sign-out register. So, uh, you know, there, there are still some things to strengthen about that system. So one will be how we're supervising to make sure people are signing in and signing out. But if someone really goes out of their way to avoid uh, being scrutinised as it was, you know, as it seems to be the case with this one, um, there's always going to be an, an element of, uh, you know, human risk that has to be we have to try and control for it, but, we, but you know, if people deliberately go out to evade the system, that's very challenging. OK, uh, let's, let's just put this case to, to, to the side for one moment. If 40% of employers were not using the register, what other checks and balances did your officials have in place to make sure those people were being tested? So if you take managed isolation, um, you know, where that's a, that's a big part of the risk profile, if you like. That's where you know, the mm. people with COVID-19 are coming through. Um, the, the, the people who run that are checking in with their contracted workforces to make sure that their employers have been keeping tabs on that. Now, in this case, First Security were telling uh, managed isolation that, yep, our staff are all being tested. Um, it would appear here that the, per, the individual concern was telling uh, their mm. employer that they'd been tested uh, and their employer was therefore telling the people in uh, managed isolation that they, you know, that their workforce was being regularly tested. Now we can build more checks and balances into that system, and we will, and we should. Um, but you know, you, you, people still do need to do the right thing. I mean, to give you another analogy, you know, if somebody drives their car too fast and causes an accident that injures or, or even kills somebody, um, to say that it's the government's fault because we didn't have a speed camera on any every every street uh, would be somewhat of a high threshold to set. I'm not sure that that analogy is entirely appropriate. I mean, we know through the insidious nature of this virus that our border is our single biggest vulnerability and that one error at the border can lead to potentially dozens of deaths. It can cost our economy hundreds of millions of dollars. The whole nation can be put into lockdown. And essentially what you're telling us is we have a system that relies on individual honesty from people working on the front line to ensure they're being tested. Well, to some extent, it's going to have to. I mean, again, take the port do we, do example. We, do we rely? Do we rely on individual honesty for passengers arriving and going through the MIQ process? Do well, they well, enter a voluntary register? Well, well, let's let's just consider this. You know, consider the alternative that people might might be somehow suggesting. Are you saying? Are we saying that every truck driver in Auckland who might enter or exit the port has to be monitored for their every movement so we can determine whether or not they came into contact with a ship? Uh, I think that would be somewhat big brotherish. What about 
relying on, say, medical staff to enter people into the register. Uh, and they do enter people into the register, but the register, again, will only tell us when someone has been tested. When they need to be tested um, is when they've been in contact with risk. Mm. Um, and, and so t- take the truck driver. Someone mm. might go to the port. They might take some some goods off a ship. They mm. might come into contact with that ship. It could be three months again before, they, before they're in a similar position. They don't need to continue to be tested right the way through that period of time. How many times has a border worker missed their test in that two-week window since you made testing for those workers mandatory in August last year? Um, so we've done some sampling to identify you know, how, how good has compliance been here. What it's showed is that about 80% of people are having their tests within the required window, uh, within that, or, or, sorry, 90%, within that remaining 10%, there's about 85-odd percent who get tested a day or two late. So they're, you know, f- f- and, and there can be good right. reasons sometimes for that. When they you say sampling, though, that's, that, there's no certainty behind that. Well, no, like I said, but I think I've explained the complexity of the, the system, which is that we don't necessarily know when people have been working. So we know when they've been tested, but we don't necessarily know when they've been working. And this is a casualised workforce. Mm. So take a security guard. That security guard might work a couple of shifts in MIQ. They could then go off and work at a, a private warehouse somewhere, um, and they may not be back in the MIQ workforce for several months. Now, the register will tell us that they haven't been tested, but it won't tell us necessarily whether or not they needed to be tested. But to be clear, you cannot say with absolute certainty how many of our border workers have and haven't been tested since you made testing mandatory in August of last year. Well, no, we can tell you how many how many tests have been taken of our border workforce. But you can't say but with absolute certainty how many have and how many haven't. Well, without, without putting an ankle bracelet on every person that comes into contact with the border, no, we, we can't do that. Why didn't you make the register mandatory from the word go? Uh, Look, um, in hindsight, hindsight's a wonderful thing. We could have moved earlier. I think in the beginning it would have been impractical to do that, um, but we probably could have got to this point where we're making it compulsory before now. Um, we were working towards that. We've been working towards that for a period of time. But it's um, not but difficult, is it? I mean, you, you could have just said, as Minister in Charge, it's mandatory. This is our single biggest vulnerability. The entire success of New Zealand's COVID-19 response comes down to our border defences. I think what I've, what I've indicated to you, though, is it's, it's, there's a bit more complexity to it than that. So not not to make it mandatory, even though, if the register, Even if the register is mandatory, people still have to consent to their mm. testing records being shared. That's, that's the New Zealand privacy law. So if you're sharing people's medical records, they have to consent to their records being shared there. So there is still so there's, a, there's extra complexity there. And mm. as, I've, as I've indicated, even a, a, a positive test or, a, sorry, a, a, you know, a, a record saying that someone has been tested um, isn't necessarily going to help if you don't know whether or not that when they next needed to be tested and only the employers will have that information. You raised concern about, say for example, truck drivers working in the port who might be in contact with the port for a day and then have no contact for the months ahead. On the 28th of September last year, the Roach-Simpson report recommended you urgently introduce saliva testing. You have only just signed off on that, but of course saliva testing would have been perfect for someone in that truck driver's situation. Why has it taken you this long to sign off on saliva testing? Uh, well, so there's so two aspects to that question. One is why, why are we not using saliva testing and the other is whether everybody who goes through the port should be saliva tested on a regular basis. So in terms of that latter point, again, that would be a pretty big hurdle. We're talking thousands and thousands of people every day that cross the port and I think it would be unreasonable to saliva test every single one of them. Um, and the, the cost of that would be astronomical, bearing in mind that saliva tests actually cost slightly more to process than the nasopharyngeal 
uh, tests, the, the, the nose swabs mm. uh, do to process. Um, the second is, you know, why has it taken this long? Well, one of the things that the, the labs have been working on is making sure that their uh, their uh, processing is as accurate as possible. Um, that process is, uh, you know, the advice that I've got now is that they're feeling pretty confident about that. So we will be able to make saliva testing more widely available. I mean, I mean, the 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 report made made it clear that saliva testing was not as reliable as the nasal swab testing, but said that those considerations should be put to one side because it's so much more convenient and people like Case B, for example, might be more inclined to be tested. Look, you know, we, we've said that saliva testing is on the way, um, but what I, you know, I'm, I'm very six mindful. Since that I'm very mindful that most of the questions so far that you've given me this morning about how someone fell through the cracks, I don't want saliva testing to be another potential avenue for people to fall through the cracks. So I'm, I'm reliant here on the the medical professionals mm. um, giving me advice that it's ready. Now they they have been reluctant to do that up until this point, um, and I've been reluctant to say go ahead and do it until people are telling me that it's reliable. This week, a parliamentary health select committee was established or considered our response, and the committee was controlled by your colleagues. Of course, they, they soaked up most of the time with waffle and asking lowball questions. It was so cynical, of course, that the Speaker actually criticised them in Parliament the next day. Who directed your colleagues to run the select committee in that way? Uh, look, that's ultimately a question for the select committee. I don't give them directions. Um, they, you know, uh, they do what they need to do. As far as I'm concerned, so, so that was the, independent. I saw the the letter that got sent to the chief executive um, of MB and the and the mm. director general of health asking them, um, you know, to come and appear before the select committee. That letter said that uh, the select committee wished to be briefed on the science around COVID-19 and the customer journey going through MIQ. Now, the people concerned seem to have been criticised for talking about what the select committee's letter to them, asked them to brief on. So, you saw the select committee, right? Uh, no, I didn't, sorry. I, you, I haven't didn't seen, you haven't seen no. the select committee? No, no. I, I mean, the, I, va the vast majority of the select committee was made up with, with either, either long-winded explanations from uh, health officials for, for information that we're all very, very familiar with, or long-winded questions designed to soak up time. It was incredibly cynical behaviour. And surely in the midst of... You know, it was so cynical that your own speaker... Uh, called it out in Parliament the next day. Don't, don't, don't the New Zealand public deserve better? Oh, look, you know, and the, and the Speaker's uh, punishment for the Select Committee was to give the opposition more questions to ask me. Mm. Um, so ultimately, you know, um, that's just the way the system operates. I don't control the Select Committee. That's really a question for them. India is recording 230,000 cases a day. Of course, we've suspended travel from India for the time being. What will we do if in the coming weeks no solutions to getting people from India to New Zealand more safely can be found. Look, I think there's two things that we've been looking at. One is, is there more we can do on the India side to try and um, reduce the risk of people getting on a plane from India to New Zealand with COVID-19? The second is, uh, how do we best manage that risk uh, when they land here in New Zealand? Bearing in mind that uh, those those planes that are bringing people from India have higher concentrations of positive cases mm. on them than a plane that's coming from somewhere else. So Singapore, what, do, what do we do if um, things don't so improve? Well, we'll have announcements on that shortly. We're, we're working our way through the advice that we're getting from officials on that. Um, it'll include what, you know, but I've already said, mm. we're looking at the pre-departure testing regime and whether there's more we can do in that space. Um, and we're looking at other things, you know, on the other side, whether there's more we can do mm. to strengthen that system. On the New Zealand side, one of the things that we'll look at is whether we're already doing cohorting, so we keep, you know, plane loads of people together, but we'll look at whether, whether there's more we can do to further strengthen our cohorting um, 
um, of arrivals again to just manage that risk and whether these flights in particular having been accommodated together actually need a, a level of supervision and mm. support uh, that's higher than what we give to most people coming in. Alright Minister, G given um given the, the revelations of the last couple of weeks and given we are just a few hours from the official opening of the Trans-Tasman bubble, can the New Zealand public have faith that our border systems and defences are up to scratch? Oh, absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why we took time um, to get this right with Australia. Now, at our airports uh, and with our airlines, green zone and red zone are completely physically separate. So anyone coming in from uh, India or from uh, America or China, they will be... Uh, handled in a very different part of the airport, completely physically separate from our green zone travellers. So the biggest risk um, of people coming from Australia um, is, mm. is, is very, very low, I should say. You know, it's, it's less, there's as much a risk of someone getting on a plane from Auckland to Wellington as there is of someone getting on a plane from Sydney to Auckland. Um, and, you know, we manage that risk by working very closely with the Australians so that in the very unlikely event that there's a positive COVID-19 case in either country, that we can work together to manage it. OK, thank you for your time. That is the Minister for the COVID-19 Response, Chris Hipkins. Coming up, don't let New Zealand's comforts fool you. Globally, COVID-19 infections and death rates are as bad as they've ever been. So we really are seeing one of the highest rates of infection so far during the pandemic. And some countries that have previously avoided widespread transmission are now seeing very steep increases. No mai hoki mai te Welcome back to Q&A. Overnight, the number of deaths from COVID-19 has reached a grim new milestone. Three million people. As richer countries look to accelerate the vaccine rollout, the World Health Organization says globally we are approaching our single highest rate of infection since the pandemic began. A few minutes ago, I spoke with Dr Margaret Harris from the WHO and asked her to assess the state of the pandemic. We're in a very, very difficult moment. Uh, uh, we all would have liked to be able to say that we were getting on top of it and we've got the means to get on top of it. We do have vaccines at work. We do know what works. New Zealand, for instance, has demonstrated, uh, demonstrated what does work without using vaccines. But worldwide, in the last 24 hours, uh, we had 800, over 805,000 cases reported to us. That's confirmed cases. There are probably many more that have not been tested. And when you consider it took up to six months for the world to accumulate one million cases, we're doing close on one million cases every day at the moment. So we really are seeing one of the highest rates of infection so far during the pandemic and some countries that have previously avoided widespread transmission are now seeing very steep increases in infections. See, it's perhaps easy for those of us fortunate enough to be in rich countries where vaccines are beginning to be distributed to forget that things are actually getting worse. Why are things so bad at the moment? It's a combination of factors, and it's and, and vaccines are not the only answer. Now, they're a great weapon, and they will protect from illness, severe illness, and from death, but they will not necessarily 
prevent transmission. Uh, what prevents transmission is being really, really serious about the social distancing, about mm. the quarantining, about ensuring that you test anyone, everyone who potentially could have the infection and making sure you really separate those who are potentially infected from the rest of the population. That's what works. And again, New Zealand has really shown that that works. Unfortunately, there seem to have been mixed messages in many countries, and it's not about wealth. Some of the wealthiest countries in the world have got the worst outbreaks. So this virus is a great leveler. Mm. It is a virus that, that um, takes advantage of the fact that we love to be together, we love to do things together, we seem to always want to be in large crowds. That is what's hurting us. Mm. If we need to be still very seriously serious about the physical distancing, about the quarantining, about the testing, and not let up. But what accounts for this spike in particular? I note that over the last two months, globally, cases have more than doubled on a per-week basis. What's really driving it are a number of very large countries with large populations. So we are really seeing terrible outbreaks in Brazil and now more recently in India. If you look at India's trajectory, it's just going straight up. And that's a huge population. That's a very large country with a very diverse um, mm. system. So if a virus is really taking off somewhere in such a population, you will see much larger numbers. However, we have also seen that you, even in the largest countries, you can stop it in its tracks, but you really have to double down on those, what we call public health social measures. That's mm. the physical distancing, the quarantining and the testing. It's very hard work, but you can do it. Let's talk about vaccines. So numerous countries have paused distribution of the Austra uh, Oxford, AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines over concerns they may, in some very rare cases, lead to blood clotting. Was that the right decision, to pause distribution of those vaccines? Well, safety is paramount in any kind of public health measure you take. And with any new technology, you must always review safety and the fact that these there have been signals of yes a very rare condition but for the person who's affected a very serious condition it's it's actually testimony to the hard work and the and and the, the appropriate surveillance that that these rare cases are being picked up and what's critical now is to understand what's causing it and also that people know what symptoms to look for and that medical practitioners are ready to check people out quickly and get them treated if they are that one in a million person who has this reaction. Mm. But if it's a one in a million case, I mean of course it is terrible for the individual involved but we're seeing you know, cases hitting more than 800,000 a day globally. Is it worth the delays? Well, what we do know certainly is if you get COVID, your risks of getting severe disease, mm. your risks of dying are much, much, much greater than one in a million. We also know that many people are now suffering from long COVID. So people who may have had a mild initial course have a much longer 
illness that persists. We're seeing it's persisting for a year. And we really don't understand what this virus can do to our physiology. So the critical thing is not to get it. And yes, vaccination is one very good way to stop. What concerns do you have about vaccine efficacy against the new strains of COVID-19? We've certainly been tracking all the variants and, and all the vaccine developers have been doing the same thing. So as soon as a variant arrives, they look at whether or not the vaccines are able to produce what you call neutralising antibodies, mm. able to actually stop the variant in its tracks just as, as well as uh, the vaccines could stop the original version. And overall, we've seen some pretty good results, but it is one of those things that must be ongoing mm. and the research must continue. And you may find that you have to have tweaks or you have to have boosters. So again, the most important thing is to get the transmission down. The longer this virus is allowed to circulate, uh, in such vast numbers in our population, the more opportunity it has to change and make itself more efficient. The CEO of Pfizer said this week uh, that the company expects people will need an annual booster. Of course, that's the vaccine being distributed in New Zealand. Do you think that will be typical of most of the vaccines? Well, certainly, again, because of the way we, the research so far only tells us about the immunity levels mm. that, the, that the vaccine stimulates, we already only have that information for about six months worth anyway because of, of the, the first research really didn't start till about September last year. So even if we didn't have variants, you may find that the immunity levels drop and you need a booster. So again, that's one of the open questions that's mm. very much being, being actively researched by scientists around the world. And we have groups that meet every week to discuss where we are with that. At the moment, it's an open question, but it's certainly something we we may have to expect that, that, that boosters of some kind may be necessary. Finally, Margaret, the researchers at Johns Hopkins estimate that globally we have now passed 3 million deaths from COVID-19. On our current trajectory, what should we expect in the coming months? On our current trajectory, it uh, suggests if we continue in this direction that we will see many, many more cases and sadly deaths. But as I said, we have seen countries that have stopped this thing in its tracks. Uh, we have seen countries that have been had a trajectory going straight up, that have taken serious measures, have got the community together, got the community behind it, and stopped it and brought it down. I've seen some European countries doing this. We've seen a lot of very good examples in East Asia. I keep on saying New Zealand, you are my one of my favourite models to trot out to other countries. Uh, but, you know, we, we know it can be stopped. The, the, the critical thing is really getting your community to behind it and taking very serious measures and getting people to understand this is serious. It's mm. killed three million of our best people. You know, we've lost a lot of our oldest and wisest. We've lost our, our, our memories. Uh, we've lost our parents, our grandparents. So we've got to stop this and we can stop it.
That is Dr. Margaret Harris from the WHO. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. After the break, hate speech versus free speech. Act's David Seymour says the government's proposed law changes will crack down on people for expressing legitimate opinions. So where should we draw the line? Tēnā koutou, welcome back to Q&A. Is freedom of speech in New Zealand under threat? ACT leader David Seymour is in the middle of a nationwide tour and says proposed hate speech legislation will add to an environment where some people already feel under attack for expressing their views. The proposed law changes the definition of hate speech, protects a range of different groups and communities and moves the offence into the Crimes Act. David Seymour is with us this morning. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Morena. What threats to freedom of speech warrant a nationwide tour? I think the idea that we're going to have a very vague hate speech law, remember the government in its cabinet paper says it can't define it. Uh, the proposed definition, I would say, is if anything more confusing than the one we have now, and then put a penalty of three years. That's a harsher penalty uh, than we have for male assaults, female uh, assaulting a child or even participating in a riot, um, is going to be very damaging uh, for New Zealanders belief in their ability to express themselves and for our country's ability to solve problems. And I'd put this in a wider context where the world is seeing democracy retreating. Uh, we're actually for the first time in many generations seeing freedom, civil liberties, political rights uh, going backwards around the world and some of these authoritarian regimes uh, looking more competent than they have for a very long time. Uh, I think that's a real problem and it reflects the fact that democracies are struggling uh, to digest difficult problems. At the same time, uh, at street level, I was at a dinner party a couple of weeks ago, someone said to me, this is supposed to be an age of enlightenment, uh, but you have to walk on eggshells with everything that you say. Uh, we, we actually need to get better at discussing and solving our problems, not worse. And into that uh, wades the New Zealand government looking to join the pile on with these penalties uh, for an ill-defined crime, but they could put you in jail for longer than male assaults female. All right, let's, let's, let's actually look at, at, at the legislation that has been proposed. So this is what could be considered hate speech laws in the current wording under the Human Rights Act, Section 131. Focus, if you're reading these words at home, because it's in legalese, so you can be punished for publishing or using words that are threatening, abusive or insulting, and have an intention to incite hostility, ill will, contempt or ridicule. I think most people would agree it's a pretty vague description. Let's look at the proposed wording, and this would be within the Crimes Act. So this says, hate speech would be the incitement of disharmony based on an intent to stir up, maintain or normalise hatred through threatening, insulting or abusive communications. It seems to me that the proposed legislation, and it is just proposed at this stage, centres on that word hatred, which is significantly less vague than the previous wording. What are your specific concerns? Well, is it? I mean, this is part of the problem with these laws. Uh, normally, the law is very clear, it's written down, and if you're accused of a crime, you can actually go to the court and say, based on the facts, uh, I did not do this thing. Burglary, classic example, uh, did you enter a premise? Was it illegal for you to enter mm. it? Did you commit a crime while you're there? Uh, you can draw on the facts of the case to defend yourself in court. Uh, when it comes to stirring up hatred, well, it's not really clear what that would include, but here's one example. Um, there are people in New Zealand who are lesbians, 
and their view is that their whole identity and definition uh, is that they are biological women who are attracted mm. to biological women. The Human Rights Commission has now defined a lesbian as a biological male or female who identifies as a woman who's attracted to women who may be uh, biological male or female. You've got two groups of people there who are both saying that the other one does not exist. Right. Now I can see a hatred case being brought about that when in reality uh, there's good people on both sides and it's a debate that needs to be but, had but, with a lot less hate. But your complaint to stick with the to stick with the legalese and I know this is a this is a there is a danger we will go right down the rabbit hole on the legalese. It all comes down to subjective takes on that word hatred. And at the moment subjectivity is everywhere within the law. Do you have problem, problems with defamation law? No, I don't. And you're, you're, subjectivity, though, and right? It, and it's a very good point that you know the test of what a reasonable person is is throughout the law. What's different about hate speech laws is that the motivation to prosecute, uh, the motivation to sympathise, uh, is actually highly politically charged, and so you're going to get much stronger motivations in one direction or another and organisations like the Human Rights Commission who are themselves highly politicised let's not forget though, sides here. Let's not forget though that this is being brought, or the, pr the proposal is to bring this within the Crimes Act mm. which is our absolute highest level. Mm. It would mean that in order to push through a prosecution police would need to be confident or police, prosecutions would need to be confident of a very high evidential basis and as well as that mm. these cases would be tried in front of a jury. Because, that, because the penalties are increasing to more than three years, you would have to be deemed to be stirring up hatred by a panel of 12 of your peers. Mm. Well, I think that's absolutely true, but there's a side... So that's a higher a, standard. Well, there's a, but there's a flip side to it. Uh, there's a higher standard because there's higher penalties. You go to prison for three years, uh, so you're right about the standards. But don't underestimate uh, what this means for the average person who is already uh, very fearful of being doxxed, of the Twitter mob, of being you know, deplatformed and cancelled no, for their views. I think you're conflating the you, issues here. Uh, I, I no. know the conflating the. I mean, I, I know that you know. I've seen you use the language around cancel culture and, and that sort of thing. But clearly, this you just said yourself. This applies a higher standard, especially around that word hatred, and by putting it within the Crimes Act. And to um, you know, I, it's it's clear that the way this legislation has been drafted. They've taken a lot of recommendations yeah. from the Royal Commission yeah. of Inquiry into the Christchurch attacks. I just want to read you a line from that. Um, <clears throat> the language of hatred and calls for violence we propose would catch only extreme speech. We do not see the reframed offence as engaged by microaggressions and so on. And here's the critical bit. Nor would it be a mechanism for criminalising the vigorous expression of opinion on controversial issues such as gender identity or immigration. So, let, so let's just come back to what, what you said a moment ago. Uh, yep, except that there's a higher standard than there is for some of the other stuff. But the point I'm making, and you dismissed it too lightly, is that people do feel a great fear these days about what might happen to them for expressing honestly held opinions. Uh, they feel they fear cancellation, they fear getting attacked for at their, in their place of employment, they fear losing their job. They certainly do. And for the state to join the pile on, I think, would be a grave mistake. Yes, there are higher standards uh, in this particular case, but there's also much more severe consequences for people to fear. And the, human, the, the sorry, Royal Commission may well have had the intention yeah. that this won't criminalise vigorous political mm. debate. That's the intention 
intention. When we make laws, uh, we're not here to have fluffy intentions. We're here ultimately to protect the freedoms of New Zealanders. And this vague legislation that can put you in jail for three years for an expressing mm. an opinion, that does not meet the standard of protecting again, though, people's rights again, and freedoms. Though, you're saying that mm. people, people get upset about, about being criticised on Twitter mm. and feel like mm. they can't express mm. their opinions without mm. being public, mm. publicly criticised, but then you are also conceding that this applies a higher standard mm. under mm. the law mm. for what constitutes hate speech. Yeah. Those are two very different things, uh, and, and I think well, we're in well, danger of conflating the issue. Well, one of them is the background to the other, and the background, I think, is very important. I think that the retreat of democracy, our ability to have honest conversations and unite New Zealanders behind good ideas mm. so we can go forward as a country, that, that is an important background to this. We're not needlessly or unfairly conflating the two issues. Uh, for the states to come in and start criminalising people for opinions, you know, it's something that they admit in their own cabinet paper, they mm. can't define the offence, uh, but, but they know you could go to jail for three years. Uh, I think that is hugely unfair. Now, Jack, can I just say another thing? Um, I'm far from unaware of the amount of hurt and harm that is done by hateful speech. I'm the Member of Parliament for Epsom. Uh, we have the largest Jewish community, I think, of any electorate in New Zealand. Mm. We have a small but very significant Baha'i community. 17% uh, of the electorate is Chinese. We have a significant Indian community. And I don't, these I don't people think Baha'is cast electoral votes, do they? Well, it doesn't matter. I'm just there for everybody in the Epsom electorate, Jack. Are you there Whether for the 30% vote for me 30, or not. For the 30 yeah. of your electorate that, that are Asian? Because we've seen in the well, last just, couple of well, weeks... I just, well, I just mentioned 17% Chinese and significant so, Indian So, th so 30 percent are Asian, yeah. and we've seen in the last couple of weeks mm. you know, marches around the country mm. from Asian New Zealanders mm. who say they want more protections mm. because they feel mm. threatened at the moment. Yeah, and there's, this is not a debate, and I wanted to raise this, I want to be clear, this is not a debate about whether we want to get to a better and more civilised place in our country uh, where we have far less rudeness, far less hatred, far less marginalisation of people based on their enduring so characteristics. So what is your message to those Asian New Zealanders? Is that, is that, 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 that speech that, is that, wrong? That, that, they, yeah. that they want more protection. Yeah, and, and as a local MP, I regularly mm. stick up for them, I tell you. But here's the next thing. Uh, this is not a question of whether that behaviour is wrong or whether we want to stop it and move mm. to a more civilised level. The question is whether giving the state the ability to prosecute people for opinions is going to get us there. Remember, the Royal Commission said uh, we want more social cohesion. My argument is that giving the state the ability to prosecute people for opinions, no matter how well intended, no matter how many protections there are initially, is not going to go well. And we see this in the UK. Except that you've no? just acknowledged this is a higher standard. And yes. this, is, this is what yeah. it comes down yeah. to. I, 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 yeah. I know that there are people who feel like they are being silenced or feel mm. like they, mm. the consequences for their, for their opinions and expressions outweigh those opinions or expressions. But when it comes down to it, this is a, a law that applies a higher standard. Mm. It all centres on that word hatred. Yep. It has to be it's convicted by 12 of your peers. Well, it, it's, a, it's a higher standard, but it's also higher penalties. And it's also a highly subjective standard where the motivation for prosecution is going to occur in a politically charged context. So let's just be clear about, you keep saying I've conceded it, actually I've given you a pretty nuanced view uh, of what the standard actually means. In other words, nothing, no real protection because it's entirely subjective. 
Now, I want to say that the, these people that are suffering from hatred of speech, the, the way that we get to a more civilised society is not to start censoring people. It's actually to have more debate, more speech. The consequences for people that say stupid and hateful things uh, should actually be ridicule and criticism. But at the moment, we're talking about... I thought about, that was cancellation. Well, we're talking, we're talking, about, I, we're talking about the state actually trying to forbid that from happening. And so I'd much rather that people suffered criticism of their ideas uh, than imprisonment by the state for, their, for the ideas that they have. It's that simple. Out of interest, mm. do you think John Banks was treated unfairly? Mm. Um, it depends on what exact, I mean, this is, this is losing his radio show. Mm. Um, look, I, I think that basically it's a commercial decision for MediaWorks, so it, it can't be unfair. It's MediaWorks property. Uh, it's their show. I've always been clear that you don't actually have a right to use other people's property to express your views. You don't have the right uh, to make people listen to you. Uh, what you do have the right is not to have the police come and knock on your door uh, because you tweeted something the police disagree with. And someone's asked me, you know, what happens off offshore? Uh, well, this has frequently happened in the UK. Okay. Well, again, though, we're looking at yeah. the New Zealand law and okay. that higher standard okay. applies, doesn't okay. it? Well, uh, well, just for that person, I did try and... <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, it is a really interesting yeah. conversation and I think we all benefit from unpacking some of these grey issues that, mm. we're, um, that, that we're trying to deal with at the moment. I know that you will be participating... Um, in feedback with this legislation yeah. if it indeed continues. David Seymour, thank you for your time. Thank you. After the break, our panellists are here. Is there anything to the latest national leadership murmurs or is Simon Bridges just stirring? Hawkey Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Let's bring in our panellists this morning. Ben Thomas is a PR consultant and former national staffer and Lamia Imam, who's a political commentator who once upon a time in a previous life worked for the Labour Party. Kia ora, Kia ora. Lamia, I'll start with you. Do you agree with the way in which David Seymour has characterised the debate around hate speech? No, I don't agree. Um, I don't think that what he's fearing is actually going to come into fruition and the examples he's using are just straw man examples, right? So he is afraid that you won't be able to express your political opinions and that you'll be thrown in jail for expressing your opinions. It doesn't say that. Essentially, I think what the Royal Commission has recommended is that we come up with a piece of legislation that stops hate speech from going into hate crimes. Mm. And they are very clear about it, that hate speech leads to hate crimes. And if you're a member of the minority groups, um, like a religious minority or a gender minority, you are in great danger. We know this. Um, those folks are subject to much more violence than the rest of us. So we should be protected. And someone like David Seymour should actually be standing up from that for them as a libertarian than advocating for more hate speech in our community. I, yeah, I'm sure he would contest that he's advocating <laughs> for more hate speech in our communities. But what right. do you think, Ben? The problem is that although the new law, you know, and we haven't seen the new law, we've seen this proposals proposed, about the yeah. new law, we've seen a bit of talking around the edges of the new law, that it would intend to set a higher standard uh, for prosecutions, but it, it does it does raise the penalties by, you know, a significant mm -hmm. amount. 
And the Royal Commission was quite clear that it wanted a higher standard in legislation because it felt that the current low standard meant that it was impossible to prosecute. Mm. So the clear signal from all of these things would be more prosecutions, that they want that, that the government wants the um, yeah. police and they want the Human Rights Commission to be more active, not just on you know the, the existing kind of grounds, which is you know race, which I think we all sort of understand intuitively kind of where the line would be on hate speech there but the proposal is actually to broaden it out to all of the areas of discrimination yeah. under the human rights act that includes political belief that includes marital status that now I, it, it's not clear to me you know where the the line for hate speech you know can, for hate can i even can i actually say i because i've been agonizing over the proposal this week over the cabinet paper this week it's not entirely clear from the cabinet paper as it stands if it does extend to political speech it hasn't actually been well drafted. I, I am not. I'm not a lawyer, but I, I. It's not entirely clear at the moment. But certainly, the the protections extend to many more groups than just groups defined by ethnicity or race. I think if you're going to jump into creating a criminal offence with a three-year imprisonable mm. penalty, you actually can't afford to not be clear in mm. your cabinet paper, particularly if it's language that you're criminalising. Um, I would like to see, and maybe this is a vain hope, examples from the government. I don't think it's good enough to say we don't want hateful speech and we don't really know what it is, but mm. we'll leave it to the courts. I, I don't think a government can cop out like that. Is that reasonable? I mean, I don't think that's reasonable because I think we do know what hate speech is, right? I think, I think what Ben is saying is that it's not clear what hate speech is, but those of us who have experienced it, I haven't experienced all kinds of hate speech, but if you've experienced it, you know what it is, right? Um, and so I don't think it's, you know, I don't like you or, you know, I forgot your name, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that. It is inciting violence against someone. It's, it's saying that that person cannot exist and live in the way that they want to live, right? Mm -hmm. And it's inviting others to do, come and attack you. And, and David just said, we want to create a society that is harmonious, right? We cannot create a society that's harmonious if the existence of hate speech is not criminalized, right? If we allow people to say hateful things based on their gender identity or their religion, how will we ever have a harmonious society? That's my question. So I think hate speech is actually very clear. You know the, what it looks like. The, there are even broader proposals, I understand, which is that there'll be a, there'll be a new civil liability for um, inciting discrimination. Mm -hmm. Now that gets you into extremely broad territory. Mm. Um, you know, if you start talking about you don't want people of a per certain political persuasion to be able, you know, to to rent your house, and, and you encourage other landlords to do it. To mm. do. I don't think th I don't uh, think they're suggesting political persuasion, right? I think they're suggesting if you if you belong to a certain group, right? Like that is very defined in terms of you are in a religious minority or you, you're a trans person. I don't think that that means if you think that our taxes should be 50% at the top tax rate, you should not be able to rent a house. Mm. Those are two different things. And I think conflating the two is really harmful. Well, this, is, this is what I'm interested well, in too. Like I think part of the problem is the proposal seems to right. conflate these issues. I think we all agree you need you know. like a, you need some. Do, I, do we? Yes. That yeah. You need like a really clear definition around this, and this is yeah. what I find quite interesting as well. Um, it, David Seymour's on the a nationwide free speech tour at, at the moment, and you know he talks about cancel culture and people feeling like their views are being silenced. 
And I know there are plenty of critics who would say that is low-hanging political fruit, that the term cancel culture is, is what PC gone mad right. was three or four years ago. <laughs> are we at risk of kind of conflating broader grievances with, with hate speech? The problem that I think maybe Seymour alluded to is that once you get you know, a large amount of political pressure coming through, mm. say, social media channels, mm. you might see institutional responses. I think we have seen that in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, knocks on the door about things that people have tweeted and, you know, which turn out not to actually be prosecutable, but the police want to send a message. They mm. want to, you know, and, you know, let's remember the state has a monopoly on force in theory. Is that what we want the state to get involved in, settling mm. Twitter beefs? Um, you know, I, I think when you're talking about incitement to violence, you know, in, incitement to sort of, you know, harassment or harassment, you know, on the street, you know, no problem criminalising any of those things. You know, that's, that's reprehensible behaviour. That's I the proper ambit of the criminal this law. This is one thing I find curious as well, that the government has chosen to, to put through these, these hate speech proposals whilst not necessarily proposing big changes at this point on hate crimes. So, say, for example, assaulting someone with a hateful intent mm -hmm. could potentially become a crime. Would that be an easier place to start, Lana? I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm not going to draft a legislation for the government. <laughs> That's up to them to decide. Um, I think my view is, I think dismissing it as Twitter beefs is not a correct way to put it, because what we're seeing is people say hateful, dangerous things online, mm. and then that leads to violence. We have, we collectively experienced this two years ago in March, right? Um, those kind of voices lend to people actually dying. We can't then say, oh, someone said something kind of not so nice on the internet and, and the police showed up. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're preventing. We're trying to prevent those kind of heinous crimes. Um, I don't know what the legislation should look like, but I do think that I agree with the commission that hate speech leads to hate crimes and we need to stop it there okay. before we go there. Okay, I have to ask about uh, a couple of other issues. Um, let's start with border testing. I mean, I, I for one was astounded to learn that the border, the, the border worker who tested positive from the Grand Millennium last week hadn't been tested in five months. Right. Is that acceptable? I, I think the question that I had for Chris was, were they working that entire five months? So no, it's not acceptable. But I want to preface that with, I just came through the border. Mm. So I have a very soft spot for the border workers because I've seen what they do. And I also have a really high regard for what the government has done in terms of their COVID response. They rolled out an action plan in a year, mm. implemented it. Are there chinks in the processes? Yeah. But if when you've come from where I've come from, where there is no plan, yeah. there is no process. You've come and from the United States. I've come yeah. from the US where we were basically left to fend for ourselves. Yeah. I'd say New Zealand looks pretty good. But, uh, but to flip, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, to flip that on its head though, it's because we've done so well. It's because right. we have, don't have COVID-19 right. in the community. Right. And we know that our border is, you know, yes. is, is the castle wall to protect yes. us. That it seems, you know, remarkable perhaps that, for example, we haven't been making the the border workers register a, ma a mandatory yeah, provision for people working there so so that if you're being well, tested you have to put your name in the box to use a bit more internet terminology following on from uh, the last segment you know it feels like we're being gaslighted by the government 
every few months we get told, uh, you know, testing of border workers is happening. We find out that it's not happening. Uh, they say now we're putting in place regular testing. We find out it's not happening. Uh, all the border workers are getting vaccinated. We find out they don't even they don't even know who or who who's been vaccinated or even who's working at the border or how many people. Um, it just seems amazing to me that this keeps getting kicked down the chain you know back in june uh, or maybe august last year the government said well oh we were trusting the ministry of health mm. to collect this information and and get this in place and they weren't now the ministry of health says well we were relying on a private security firm to get this information and they weren't and the private security firm is saying well we were just asking our guard whether he had had his jabs yeah. I mean, this is, this is not acceptable. Yeah. This yeah. Is and I not think part of the problem is, is that there's multiple groups, right? You have the government, mm. you have the ministry, and then you have privatized entities, right? Mm. And so I'm not surprised this is happening. I do think we should hold the government to a higher standard in New Zealand than anywhere else because we are doing so much better. I agree with that. But I also think, are we freaking out a lot more than we need to? Um, because I think that what is more important is, do they have systems in place for when something like this happens? And it seems like they do. Mm -hmm. So when he did test positive for COVID, we do have systems in place to contain it. Um, and so I think that's really important that it's not spreading out into the community. And I do think they're learning from each, act, you know, each activity that happens, right? And they're iterating on their processes. Mm -hmm. So one year is not a long time to make this be perfect. And I think it is pretty perfect, but I do expect this to not happen again, mm. right? Mm. Um, I don't want to see this happen again. So I, I would agree with that, that we do need more information. And I do think there should be more communication between all these departments. Mm. And I'm hoping that they're working on it. But um, mm. yeah, it is, it is scary for New Zealanders, I think. How was the food in EMIQ? Food was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> food was a few great. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I read. I worked. I relaxed a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think. I think what New Zealand is doing should be somewhat of a model. Mm. Um, but you know, I'm very biased. I came from a place where there was no model. So yeah. well, it's good to have you back. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time and insights this morning, Ben Thomas and Lamia Imam. After the break on Q&A, with the bubble just a few hours away, we're going to show you what passengers from Australia will experience when they arrive in Aotearoa. Where does the thermal camera take my temperature? Oh, it's actually in front of you now. So it's taking um, our body temperatures and the person behind the stand will be able to see that. Kia ora te whānau, hoki mai ki Q&A. Welcome back. Wellington has the honour of sending off the first flight to Australia tomorrow as the Trans-Tasman bubble officially opens. Kiwis, of course, have been able to travel to Australia without quarantining for months now, so really it's travellers headed in this direction who will benefit the most. Reporter Fina Owen got an exclusive look behind the scenes at Wellington Airport to see what passengers can expect when they arrive in Aotearoa MIQ free. Wellington International Airport, famous for its swooping eagles and its hairy landings. After a year of no in or outbound Australian flights, it's now counting down the hours and going big on the bubble. So this is your arrivals area and look at this. So this is your new bubble branding. Yeah, Kiura, good day. How good is that? It's quite bold. 
I think people are going to love it. Wellington's categorised as a green airport, which means it doesn't process MIQ passengers. Well, not this bit anyway, but across the runway, it's handled MIQ charter flights like the Avatar crew, the Phoenix, the Australian cricket team and transfers from Auckland. Just off the airport, cabbies and Uber drivers say things are looking up for them. Business is going to boom. Most of the flights are going to come from Sydney, Melbourne, so I think so. it's really good for our business. Are you nervous at all, though, about having a passenger from yes. Australia in your car? Yes, I was thinking about it. <laughs> and, yeah, we are, we, are, you know, we are pretty secure and safe here at the moment, but people coming from Australia, and I don't know. Yeah, so this is where passengers will walk through, and you can see the custom zone here. So, yeah, this is where the process is and starts. What's this here? Yeah, that's a thermal camera, so passengers will walk through here, and it does check um, that they meet the, uh, uh, the standard of body temperature. One of your staff just told me that there are 47 hand sanitizer stations between the air bridge and arrivals. That's yeah, right. that's right. There's um, a lot of sanitizer stations. So, yeah, passengers, you know, they always um, have these and they can sanitize their hands. And we'll also be making sure that passengers have downloaded the, um, the New Zealand app um, and they know how to use it and they can scan and also make sure that they turn the Bluetooth um, uh, tracer app on as well. Where does the thermal camera take my temperature? Oh, it's actually in front of you now, so it's taking um, our body temperatures and the person behind the stand will be able to see that. Airport staff have all been vaccinated and last week staff at the Ridges Hotel, right on the airport, had their jabs. The hotel's keen to get back to real business. All the staff are excited. Uh, we'll be able to employ some more staff as well. So look, it's getting back to a bit of normality, which is really pleasing. The hotel was completed only two years ago with the Australian passenger traffic in mind. Obviously you have departures at 6am and arrivals at 12.30 at night, so it's just really convenient being right attached to the airport. Quite often people from Palmerston North or the Capti region or further away quite often like to stay here um, on the way to their flight or on the way back. OK, because they've got to line up about 4.30am, don't they? Yeah, they do. So quite often they'll come in, uh, go downstairs, check in, and then go back to bed for a little bit. No. Yes, true. I think those first flights are going to be a lot about families and friends and reconnecting. You know, there's been, been a lot of separation over the last 12 months. So, yeah, I think those first flights will see that. And then as the flights get more established in weeks ahead, you know, you're going to see more people just visiting and tourists. But, yeah, I think it's really important for those family and friends to get together. So when's your first flight in from Australia? Um, so that's on Monday at 1 o'clock. Yeah. yeah so Anything planned for that? Yeah, no, it's going to be a big surprise for everybody. So there's going to be celebrations, there's going to be a big welcome ceremony as well, there's going to be signage on the runway, and uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of surprise and a lot of smiles. So you are going all out? Wellington We're going all out for this. It's been a long time coming. Finau and reporting there. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for watching and to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hey te rā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.